Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What does it mean to you to call yourself a Christian? Christians consider the sacrament of baptism to be a sacred act by which each one of us can be or has been enfolded into the Christian life. Baptism demonstrates the covenant relationship by which God promises that we have a place in God's story and we promise to do our best to be faithful to God. Church membership is a reaffirmation of the baptismal covenant. So if you have been baptized as a teenager or as an adult, or if you have formally joined any Protestant church in membership, then you have made the promises of the baptismal covenant. You have chosen to be a Christian. There's a story I want to tell you this morning, a story with some delightful, familiar characters, not once upon a time, but from the beginning of time, there has been a sacred mystery. The nature of this mystery is and always has been the generation of life. The nature of this mystery is and always has been love. The nature of this mystery is and always has been some mix of chaos and order, and this mystery holds great energy. I love the language of sacred mystery, and I affirm the impossibility of pinning down that mystery with words. But we are human beings. We try to describe the indescribable, and most people most of the time and throughout time, understand and imagine things best through stories. Stories have characters, and it is usually helpful to us when these characters have names. So we imagine the sacred mystery as the protagonist, the main character, and we give the sacred mystery a name. We call the mystery God. From the beginning of time, there has been God, and God has been the source of life and the source of love. And this creative and life-giving God worked like a painter, a potter, a poet. This God painted light and dark, and God drew a line between earth and sky, and God formed mountains and oceans. God wrote living things into the story plants, and animals. As our story unfolds, this God character, who is also author of the story, God wrote other characters into the story, and we gave them names, Adam and Eve. But really we knew that this was the whole human race who entered the story, who were these characters written into the story. This God character who is a God of life and love is also a God of abundance. So God painted us a picture of abundance, a picture of a lush garden where all creation lived together in peace and harmony, a garden where there was plenty and where life was easy. 
I imagine that this garden was greener than anything we see in California or would see in the Mediterranean basin where this story was born. But Adam and Eve, or in other words, all humans, were smaller than God, smaller in understanding and smaller in vision. We humans couldn't always see the abundance God held out before us. And sometimes we chose smaller things than what God offered. Sometimes instead of abundance, we chose to be right, or to have power, or to be safe, or to be self-sufficient. And our choices widened the distance between us and God. But over and over, God invited us to draw close, to close that distance. God invited us to leave captivity for freedom and to choose abundance over scarcity. God was clever and creative. God had unlimited ideas for how to invite us closer. God used floods and olive branches and love affairs and wrestling matches. God used visions and siblings and dreams. God used burning bushes and running water. God tried using instructions and using rules. God used friends. God used our joy and used our sorrow. Often, God used our mistakes over and over and over again. So God used every trick in the book and invited and invited and invited us closer. If I were God, I would have been exhausted. If I were God, all my ideas would have been used up after at least the first 3,000 years. But if we had been there, and if we could have peeked up God's sleeve, we would have seen still another trick tucked away there. That's when another character entered the story, or maybe the same character by another name. That name was Jesus. God decided to set aside being powerful and be vulnerable instead, as vulnerable as the soft flesh of an infant. And God, the protagonist, was born to minor characters in the story, poor people living in an occupied land. And this God-born character named Jesus grew up and turned things topsy-turvy. Jesus turned conventional wisdom on its ear with crazy ideas like loving our enemies. Jesus hung out with the villains in the story, sinners and outcasts. He made a difference by healing people and feeding people. He made friends so unreliable that one would betray him and another would deny him. He made the people with power very angry. And he taught people to live the way he lived. And by writing this Jesus character into the story, God gave us a glimpse of what it would look like if there were no distance between a human and God. We caught a glimpse of what was possible, of how it would be if we could hear all of God's invitations, notice how God used every trick in the book, a glimpse of how it would be if we could hear and notice and respond. We saw how we might live. 
We dared to believe that the sacred mystery, which is life and love, could never, ever be killed. Not really. We watched the story unfold and began to believe in the promise of new beginnings. And Jesus asks, Will you come and follow me? And some of us say, yes. Or maybe we say, well, I'll try. And that is when you, too, become a character in this story. And that, my friends, is the story of baptism. This long story that I've told you, the service of the baptismal covenant has a particular name for that story. The baptismal covenant calls the story God's mighty acts of salvation. The words of the baptismal covenant say, through the sacrament of baptism, we are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. I call it taking our place as characters in God's story. But the baptismal covenant calls it being incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. And I have said that when we ourselves are invited to take our places as characters in the story, when Jesus asks you and me, will you follow me? I have said that we say yes, or maybe, well, I'll try. But the service of the baptismal covenant is liturgy and sacrament. So instead of yes, or I'll try, in the service of the baptismal covenant, we say much fancier and more complicated words. In the service of the baptismal covenant, we say we renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of our sin. We say we accept the freedom and power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. We say we confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, put our whole trust in his grace and promise to serve him as our Lord. We say we will be faithful members of Christ's church and serve as Christ's representatives in our world, proclaim the good news, and live according to Christ's example. Because rejecting evil and resisting injustice is the way of life we are invited to by a character who turned conventional wisdom on its ear. And this is what it means to say yes, or even, I'll try, to the invitation to follow Jesus. I've said that we are invited to take our places as characters in the story. I say it that way, but the language of the baptismal covenant says it this way. Through baptism, you are incorporated by the Holy Spirit into God's new creation and made to share in Christ's royal priesthood. Picturing the story of God's activity and God's vision and God's invitation gives us a sense of what it means to choose the Christian life. What it doesn't quite do is convey how utterly transformative this is intended to be. Paul uses the language of being baptized into Christ Jesus and the language of being buried with Christ into death so that we might walk in newness of life. Paul says we will be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. 
John's gospel uses the language of being born from above or born of water and spirit. And the intention is that this movement from an old life into new life transforms us. There's a story told about the emperor Constantine, and I've told it before. He converted the Roman Empire to Christianity in the 4th century, but he himself refused to be baptized until he was on his deathbed. He knew that unifying his diverse empire through a common religion was strategic, but he didn't want to actually change his life in the way baptism asks us to. I'm not sure whether that story is true, but it reinforces the point that baptism is meant to be transformative. This transformation that we undergo in saying yes to the Christian life does not only transform us. Our transformation in baptism ultimately transforms the world as well. Because the life God reveals in Jesus Christ is a life engaged with the real world issues of human foibles and systemic injustice. Our worship ministry brainstormed the idea of examining the vows of membership in a sermon series. But as soon as I started looking at that, I was captivated by the whole of the baptismal covenant, where the membership vows are found. The whole picture of the invitation to take our places in God's story. And United Methodist vows of membership are a relatively small piece of the picture. The whole picture includes the eternal story called God's mighty acts of salvation. The whole picture also shows us the difference community makes to our participation in the story. Shows us why this thing we call church can support us in this transformative life. We'll talk more about that next week. My invitation to you today is simply to hear the story. It is an invitation to fall in love with this story. I hope you will reaffirm your choice, your yes, or maybe say yes for the first time if you haven't already. I hope you will feel delight at claiming your place in the Christian life. Amen.